Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. I hope the connection is clear with load shedding and all the problems. Uh, there have been some issues. So it's great to be with you as always on a Wednesday afternoon and to share some ideas with you and some information about great people in the history of the Jewish people. And we'll start out with Rav Arun Kotler. On Shabbos was the 2nd of Kislev. We're now in the month of Kislev. Uh, today is the 6th of Kislev. Shabbos was the 2nd of Kislev. And that was the Yotzeit of Rabbi Aaron Kotler. It was the 59th Yotzeit. He passed away on the 2nd of Kislev, 1962. Rabbi Aaron Kotler was one of the most inspirational and um, and admired Jews of the 20th century. Rabbi Aaron was born in 1891 in Lithuania, an area that's now part of Belarus. And at the age of 10, um, he was orphaned. He became an orphan. He lost his parents. And he was adopted by his uncle, Rabbi Yitzhak Pans, a Dayan in Minsk. He went to learn in Slobodka, the famous yeshiva of Slobodka in Lithuania. And he learned under the altar of Slobodka, Rav Nochtensvi Finkel and Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein. Um, he then joined his father, he went to join his father-in-law, uh, Rav Issa Zalman Maltzer, to run his father-in-law's yeshiva, to help him run the yeshiva in Slutsk in Lithuania. After World War One, the Yeshiva of Slutsk moved to Kletsk, which is now Belarus, um, and he became the Rosh Yeshiva of Aaron Kotler. When World War Two broke out, so the Yeshiva, like many of the Yeshivas of the time, moved to Vilna, which was an international city, which provided safe haven for a short while um, for the Yeshivas. And uh, he was, by the time he moved to Vilna, when the World War Two broke out, he had 300 Talmudim in Kletsk and was already seen as one of the great Talmidei Chachamim, one of the great Rosh Hashivas in Lithuania. He was saved by the Varad Sola in America just in time, the last minute, just before the breakout of World War II. Well, World War II has already started, but just before the Operation Barbarossa in July 1941, before the Germans moved east and attacked um, Eastern Europe, and uh, he, he got out on the 10th of April 1941 and arrived in the United States. And he then focused all of his energies on the Vada Tzola. Vada was the organization in America that tried to save as many Jews as possible from the uh, dangers, from the disaster, from the, from the unbelievable destruction of European Jewry. And Rav Aaron was successful in many, many different cases and saved many different people. And uh, he was very passionate about and committed to. He worked 24-7 to try and save as many Jews as he could from the murder, murderous um, Nazis in Europe. Rav Aaron wrote his um, – ma- uh, many of his talks were written down in a three-volume set called Mishnah Rabbi Aaron. And he writes, I'd like to share something with you that he writes over there, which I think is a, a very powerful lesson and the way he lived his life. He makes comment on 
Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah tells us in Shmoy's base, Pasuk Yud Aleph, that the Yigdal Moshe, Moshe grew up, he went out to his brothers and he saw their suffering. So Varanos, why does the Torah tell Yigdal Moshe, uh, that Moshe had his bar mitzvah, you know, he was a gadol. What's the significance of that? He said, because the Torah is telling us the Yigdal in this context is referring to not him becoming a gadol having his bar mitzvah, but rather to him maturing, becoming a mature human being. When do we become a mature human being? When we go out and see others and see the suffering of others. Avaran writes on that. So he, Shahaya Roya, the Sidbosam Boyfe, Moshe Rabbeinu saw the suffering of his fellow Jews and he cried. Perish Haloshan Vyarbi Sidbosam, Hainu Haragosha Bachush Mamsh. Aaron Kotla, that he actually felt it very deeply, very sincerely. It became, he empathized in a sincere way with him. Nasa Enav, Libo Lios, he placed his eyes and his heart to suffer together with him. So from here we learn, says Ravon Kotla, of the importance of for all of us to have the ability to empathize with others when they're in suffering and all the more so when they're in danger. And all the more so to the suffering of the Rabbi of Klai Yisrael of the Jewish people. And he in fact goes on to say that, that it, it's, a, it's a very important obligation of every Jew to assist in the helping of Klal Yisrael, of the Jewish people, in whatever situation and circumstance one may find oneself in. And that uh, we all need to focus our energy and strength in order to help the Jewish people. And he says, By um, taking on the suffering and the and the the pain of the Jewish people, so we are uh, following in the in, we fulfilling the commandment of of clinging to Hashem for Dafkaboy. You need to cling to our Kodesh Baruch Hu, and that's by by working for and assisting Klaish. Are we doing that? Promotion. That's He says that's also a fulfillment of Barakhu Drachav. We're following in the ways of Hashem. I'm with you in your suffering. So we all need to be with Klai Yisrael in their plight, in their suffering and hardship. So Varankhata says we can't just, you know, live our own private lives and enjoy the comforts and the success of our own personal private existence. We need to see the suffering of other individuals and we need to empathize and do all we can to alleviate that suffering. And all the more so Klai Israel. We need to see the circumstances and situation of the Jewish people and play our part in helping Klai Israel helping the Jewish people. And that's certainly what he did during the war years when he escaped Europe and he got to the United States and he actually became the head of Barat Salah. And then he started a yeshiva in 1943 in the middle of the Shoah, middle of the Holocaust, Rav Aaron Kotler started his yeshiva based Midrash Gabua in Lakewood, in New Jersey. He started with 13 Talmudim, 13 students, and Lakewood at the time was like a very quiet holiday town, and soon after he started, he bought a hotel and turned it into a base midrash, into Yeshiva, which could have 250 students. By the time he died in 1962, there were already 250 students in Lakewood, and since then, it's just expanded and grown Rav Aaron always said that we need to rebuild what the Nazis destroyed in Europe. 
and he did a a he a, a, a tremendous job at starting base Midrash Gabua and building it into a significant shiva by the time he died. It was taken over by his son of Shneel Kotla and by his grandchildren, his grandson of Malkil Kotla, and they have continued his holy work, and Blakewood has now become the largest Torah learning city in the world. Um, there's more than 7,000 Talmudi associated with Lakewood and its affiliate yeshivas. And there's a uh, religious Jewish population of over 70,000 in Lakewood, which is quite unbelievable and part of the tremendous dedication, commitment, and love that Aaron Kotler had to the Jewish people to climb Israel. So we'll be back in a moment where we'll discuss some wonderful Torah teachings of Rav Aaron Kotler. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about one of the most inspirational and accomplished Jews of the 20th century, Rabbi Aaron Kotler. His yacht was lost Shabbos on the 2nd of Kislev. And we discussed how Rabbi Aaron, in the midst of the horror and destruction of the Holocaust. Um, he had escaped just in time in April 1941 to the United States, and amongst his mammoth efforts to save as many Jews as possible, so he also started based Midrash Gavua, the Lakewood, Lakewood Yeshiva, which became the largest Torah learning institution in the world as it is today. And uh, unbelievable inspiration from the person who lived through those times and was completely dedicated to building Torah and building Hashem's people, building Klai Yisrael, as he said, as he teaches, that it's our obligation to do all we can to build the Jewish people and to assist the Jewish people, especially in times of suffering and of hardship. And so dedicated was Rabbi Aaron Kotler to the Jewish people that even um, sometimes to his own detriment. So, for example, he had started Beis Midrash Kavua, the new yeshiva, uh, yeshiva in Lakewood, and he had to fundraise for the yeshiva to keep the yeshiva um, going, and he had a board of directors that assisted him in the running of Lakewood, and he was very dedicated to what's called Chinof Atzma'i, which is the um, educational organization in Eretz Israel, and to Torah Masoya, which was the Torah educational institution in America, and he put a lot of time and energy and effort into building Torah education both in Israel and in America, and sometimes to his own detriment that the members of his board of Beis Mirish Kavua said to him, you know, you're spending so much, so much time on Torah Musur, and your fundraising is primarily for those causes. What about for your ownership of Beis Mirish Kavua? And he said to this person, what do you want me to do? Do you want there to be a new generation of Jews that don't know anything about Torah in Eretz Yisrael in America? He said, I have no choice. So he was a man of the cloud and he was dedicated to to the Jewish people, and that's probably why he got so much siyata d'shmai in all that he did in building Torah Masoira, building Chinuch Atzma'i, and of course in building his own Lakewood Yeshiva, which as we mentioned today is flourished and is flourishing um, to this day. Of Aaron, he, I just want to share with you some little tidbits of some of his beautiful teachings, which are worthwhile to share from Mishnah's Rebbe Aaron. And I heard these from Rabbi Pesach Kron. One of them being that Rabbi Aaron Kotler emphasized 
that in we see in Sefer Bamidbar that the Jewish people are um, each place is clearly described for each tribe. Each tribe, when the Jewish people traveled and camped in the desert, so there was a very clear formation. Everybody had their place. Everybody had their position. Rav Aaron said we learned from there that we have to have seder in our life. We have to be organized. There has to be organization in the way we live our lives, in the way we deal with all the many different aspects of our lives, in the way we behave as human beings. And when there's seder, when there's order, so one can have menucha sanefesh, one has um, self-satisfaction and tranquility. And when there's no seder, or when everything's a mess and a balagan, and he's disorganized, so one can't achieve menucha sanefesh, one can't achieve a sense of tranquility and satisfaction in one's life. Very powerful lesson. Baron asked the question, he said, why is it that we daven? Why do we daven to Hashem? Hashem is a perfect being. Hashem is omnipotent. Hashem knows what we need. So why do we have to ask Hashem for what we need? We say, Barach, Aleinu, bless, bless Aliyu with prosperity. And we say, Rufa'inu, Hashem, please heal us. We say, Shema Kuleinu, listen to our voice. Why do we have to ask it? Hashem knows what we need. So Rav Aaron explained and says that we ask Hashem for us. That impresses upon us that everything is min That helps um, us integrate and and assimilate, absorb, understand, live with the awareness and the cognizance that Hashem is the one who runs the show. Hashem runs the world. So when we dive in 4B6 to Hashem, that impresses upon us in a very real and deep way that it all comes from Hashem. And that is the truth. As we know, if we think that we're in control of ourselves, and of our lives, and of our destiny. So we are very, very wrong. We are very mistaken. Nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. Nobody knows what in any area or aspect of our lives, what um, is going to be happening, whether it's personal, whether it's communal, whether it's financial, whether it's political, at all unknown. And Hashem is running the world. Um, and... The, the reason why we daven, says Ravan Kotla, is in order to awaken us to this reality and make it tangible within our mind that Hashem is the one who runs and controls the world. So um, it has been important to talk about Ravan Kotla and his phenomenal achievements in his life and uh, his wonderful teachings and his great inspirational example that he uh, left all of us with in Claudius Rome. So let's now talk about some lessons to learn from Yaakov Avinu, Jacob Alfofar. This week's parsha is Parshas Vayetze, and we see it's fascinating that Yaakov, the Torah tells us Yaakov leaves, Yaakov left. His mother, Rivka, told him that he needs to go find a wife um, from where she came from, from her, from her hometown, and that his brother Esav was gunning for him, was after him, and so it was a good time, good idea. For him to leave quickly, to, for, for him to leave immediately. And the Torah says, Vyeitse Yaakov, and Yaakov leaves. So what does it say, Vyeitse, not Vyeilech, Yaakov went. Vyeitse means he's, he, he exited. He, there was an exit. There was a clear, um, departure of Yaakov. It's emphasizing the departure. And Rashi explains and says the emphasis on the departure, Vyeitse, Lohayat Sarech Liktov, Ela Vyeilech Yaakov, Kharana. So Rashi says, Velama Histir Yitzi 
What does the Torah mention his departure? It's telling us that when a righteous person leaves a place, so it has a tremendous impact on that place. When a tzaddik is in a city, he is the glory, he is the light, he is the radiance of that city. When a, when a tzaddik leaves, when a righteous person leaves a place, so, um, so does its glory, so does its radiance, so does its light leave its place. So that's the, the emphasis on Vayetze Yaakov. But we see that that, that hasn't could have been taught with Abraham. Um, why was it taught with Yaakov? Because there's another aspect to the leaving of Yaakov, which is important and which is very significant. And that is that Yaakov is now embarking on a new journey and a new chapter in his life. He's never going to be the same. He's never going to come back and return to the existence that he had up to now. Up until now, Yaakov was an Ishtam Yoshev Ohal. He was a pure person who was sitting in the tents. He was learning Torah all day. He was very much immersed in the holiness and Kedusha of the Torah. And he didn't have to face the realities of this world in terms of dealing with the evil forces that exist and dealing with um, other aspects of this world that we live in, which are not, um, which are counter to and are the opposite of the sanctity and holiness of the Torah. There's a lot of forces out there which up until now Yaakov had been protected from. And he now has to go to the house of Lavan. And we know Lavan was a very dishonest person. He was a real swindler of note. And she, he had to deal with the Sar Shil Esav, which is the spiritual force that represents Esav. He has to deal with Esav himself. These are all new experiences that Yaakov has to learn to deal with. And his concern is, can he maintain his holiness? Can he maintain his sanctity? Can he maintain his purity when he's confronting all of this evil? That's his worry. That's his concern. He davens to Hashem to help him and to um, ensure that he can maintain his spiritual level, even though he's now going to be in a new environment, a negative spiritual environment. And that answers a question. I've, I've often had the question, why is it that Yaakov had to go and study in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'eber? The Torah tells us that he goes to learn um, for 14 years, a, a very serious time to learn Torah day and night, um, in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'eber. In the in that yeshiva. So why wasn't it enough for him to learn in the yeshiva of his father Yitzchak? His father was a great man. His father was a big tzaddik. His father was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. So why was it not good enough for him to learn by his father? Why did he have to go and learn with Shem and Eva? Rabbi Achul Kamenetsky says the reason is is because Shem and Eva were the ones who had the Messiah, who had the tradition of how to deal with evil individuals. And with an evil society. They both lived through the Dor HaMavl, the generation of the flood, the Dor HaFlaga, the generation of the tower. They knew very well the challenges of trying to be a holy Jew amidst such an evil environment and evil society. And therefore they were the ones who would prepare Yaakov and train Yaakov and give Yaakov this Messiah, this tradition of how to deal um, with 
the broader society, and therefore he had to be there for 14 years. And Yaakov then goes to the house of Laban, as the Torah tells us, and he has to deal with Laban, with this very dishonest, um, very slippery individual called Laban, his uncle. And um, he has to then, he encounters what we call the Sar Shal Esav. According to our holy tradition, there's a malach, a spiritual energy, a spiritual force that represents every nation in the world. And the Sar Shal Esav is really the malach Amabis, is the angel of death, is the Satan himself, is the representative of all negative evil spiritual forces in the world. Yaakov confronts him. Yaakov has to have, he, he has a head-on battle and clash with this spiritual force, with the Sal Shal Esav. And the Torah says, uh, in fact, this angel, after Yaakov clashes with him and, and tussles with him, says, Ki Sarisa V'tuchal, says, because you overcame and you were successful. V'tuchal means you were, you overcame me. So, and that was the bracha that he gives Yaakov. So there's a very interesting kasha of the Chidusha Arim. Chidusha Arim was one of the great Gera Rebbe's, uh, one of the Rebbe's of Gera Hasidim in Poland. And he, Chidusha Arim says, why is it that our name is Yisrael? The Jewish people is now Yisrael. Came from that Malach then said to Yaakov, your name will be, will also be Yisrael. And that's where B'nai Yisrael comes from. But why was our name not Tuchal? B'nai Tuchal. Tuchal means that you were successful. Why are we not called the children of the successful one, the B'nai Tuchal? Why are we rather B'nai Israel? And he answers so beautifully, which is such a powerful and important lesson for us all to learn. He's called B'nai, we called B'nai Yisrael from the word Saritz. He's Saritz, you, uh, Saritz means that you clashed, you tangled with this force. Because the success of a Jew is entering into that clash, is being part of that, of that confrontation, is fighting that struggle. That's you, Saris really means to struggle. So the success of a Jew is not the outcome. The outcome is up to Hashem. Hashem decides in the outcome. The success of a Jew is the struggle itself, is when we engage in that battle, in that struggle. We don't just give ourselves over to the side of Esau, to the Yetzirah, to the Malachim of but rather to the Satan, rather we struggle with the Satan. We we try our best to remain strong and to stand up to the values and principles of God and of the Torah and to be loyal to Hashem's moral system. We don't just throw in the towel and say, okay, I'm yours, take me away. That's what unfortunately most of the world does. But the role of a Jew the function of a Jew, the mission of a Jew, that we learn from this, says the Chidesh from the fact that Yaakov was named Yisrael from the word Saris, because you struggle, tells us that this struggle is the all-important focus of our lives. And it is a real struggle. It's a real struggle to remain loyal to Torah observance and to mitzvah observance in a world of Esau, in a world of darkness, in a world of spiritual superficiality and emptiness, to remain loyal to our values, the values of Torah. They're not our, we didn't make them up. They came from God, God's values, God's moral system, God's morality. That takes a lot of strength, and that's a real struggle. And if we are 
able to stand up and fight that battle and struggle with those forces. So that's our destiny as a nation. That's who we are. That's B'nai Yisrael. Those are the children of Yaakov, which we all are. So it's a very, very important and powerful message. And so it should inspire us all, it should inspire every Jew that, you know, to do the mitzvahs and to go against the stream and go against the norms of Western society and to keep Shabbos and to keep kosher and to keep Taras HaMishbacha, the laws of family purity, and to daven to Hashem, to daven three times a day, to put an outer filling and to say brachas and to try and connect to Hashem, to the creator of the universe, to the source of all blessing in the world and the one who perpetuates life in this world, and to try and reach out and connect to that eternal spiritual force that we call God. So that's a real struggle. And that was the struggle that Yaakov had, and that's the struggle that we all go through, and that's the purpose of our existence. That's why we're here, and that's what we are all sent to this world to do. That's our mission in this world, to grapple with and to struggle, and to try, like Yaakov did, to... Please, God, overcome those forces, remain loyal Jews, serving Hashem, believing in Hashem, and fulfilling the commandments of Hashem. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's end off with some very powerful lessons about the holy and illustrious Imaos, the matriarchs of Jewish people. In particular, I want to focus on Leah. So we know there are four mothers of the Jewish people, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, the Leah. And let's look at a little bit of what the Torah tells us this week's Pasha about Leah and the life of Leah. Well, the Gomorrah says um, that call Imaos Akaros, all of the matriarchs were barren. They didn't have children immediately. Why? That Hashem wants the prayers of the righteous. So in other words, Hashem delayed them conceiving because Hashem wanted them to daven sincerely and fervently um, for whatever reasons. Based on what Ravaran Kota said, is in order that they should develop and grow. And the Hashem wants us all to daven because that's a tremendous movement within ourselves, a spiritual growth to open up our hearts and cry out to Hashem that moves us and changes us spiritually in a very powerful way. And it's very interesting, the says of the God to Leah, in this week's Pasha, in Perik Chavtes, Hasog Yud Zayin, Ve'enei Leah Rakos, Ve'rachel Ha'isa, Yevastra, So Leah's eyes, Rakos means soft. Leah's eyes were soft. What does it mean they were soft? So Rashi explains, and he says, Sha'isa Savura Na'alos, Leah thought that she would be marrying Asaph. She would fall to Asaph. And she cried that that shouldn't be the case. As it says in Bereshish Rabbah, Rashi quotes that everybody said that Rivka's got two um, sons and Lavan's got two daughters. And the oldest son of Rivka, who is Esau, will marry the oldest son of Laban, which is Leah. And the youngest son, Yaakov, will 
will marry Rachel. And so she knew that there. And she always, you know, had that in her mind. And she didn't want to marry Esau. Esau was a very rough, a very harsh, a very evil individual. And she didn't want that to be her husband. And so she cried. And she cried out to Hashem very, very sincerely and from the depth of her heart. And we see what happened. We see that things turned around. It's very interesting. Some people say that they um, don't like the name Leah. They don't want to be called Leah because Leah was destined for Esav. Leah cried. And um, the Pasuk says about Leah, so it says that we know the whole story with Lavan and um, Yaakov worked in order to marry Rachel and Lavan tricked him and um, made him marry Leah first. And it says that uh, uh, the Pasuk says that uh, that Yaakov loved Leah, but he loved Rachel more. Then the very next Pasuk says, It looked like Leah was snuya, like she was hated. But the Pasuk just said that he loved her. He just loved Rachel more. Yiftach is Rachman. Hashem then opened up Leah's womb and she was able to conceive. Rachel Akara, but Rachel wasn't able to conceive. So, um, firstly, it's just interesting to mention that, you know, in the context of a marriage, even if a person is loved, but they feel that their spouse loves something else more, somebody else more, so then they feel hated. Because in other relationships, one can tolerate that the person you know, loves many things. But in a marriage, which is a a complete commitment of two souls to each other, and they become one soul. So when when a spouse feels like there's something else and there's something in between, they feel hated. They feel like they're not loved at all. Because the marriage is a 100% pure love and commitment one to the other. So Leah um, is then, Hashem uh, has mercy on her, and so the, you command ask the question. It says all the imams, all the mothers were barren. But here now it says she conceived. But the pasuk does say that Hashem opened up. In other words, he, he, he up until then she couldn't conceive, and now she did. Um, but we see an amazing thing. We see this principle from the law of Leah. That's what we say in Shir Hamalos. Before we bench, before we thank God for after we've eaten bread. So on Shabbos and Yom Tov, we say Shir HaMalos, which is a, a psalm that we uh, introduce the benching with before we start the benching. And in that psalm written by King David, King David says the wide words, Azorim B'dima, somebody who sows with tears, Berina Yotzoro, where that person will harvest with joy. In other words, sometimes, you know, in life, there's hard work and there's blood, sweat and tears. And if we put in the blood, sweat, and tears, so we will reap the rewards. We will literally reap and harvest with joy. And that was Leah. Leah, she cried, and she cried early, and Hashem heard her cries. And she things moved, and things changed, and things turned in her favor. And as the Pasuk says, Lev nishbar v'nidche lokim lo tivze. A heart that is broken and is sincere, so... God will not turn away from. God will answer such an individual. And we see with Avram and Sarah, they had to cry. They had to cry many, many years before they could have children. And Yitzhak and Rivka had to cry out to Hashem many, many years. And so did Rachel. And Leah, she cried early. Hashem said, you've cried enough. 
we've had enough tears. And he, he gave her the great gift and blessing of children early on. Chazal, our sages teach us, Al Naros Bavel, Sham Yashav that by the, the waters of Babel of Babylon, and I think this is a song about it, by the rivers of Babylon, there we wept, um, there we sat and we wept. So that's from, from, um, Psalms, from David Amelech. So well, it was written later on, uh, by the Navi. So that's by, by, so what does the Pasuk say? That by the waters of Babylon, so there we cried. And the prophet says that if we cried earlier, if we cried before the exile, if we cried when we're still in Yerushalayim, so maybe the destruction of the Chorban of the first base of Mikdash wouldn't have happened. So sometimes one of the most um, tragic things that exist in this world is late tears, is tears that come too late. They're never too late. Tears are always powerful and have an impact. But late tears are tragic. Sometimes one often sees that, you know, when a parent has left this world and the children... They're crying during Shiva, but they sometimes the tears are a little bit late and they feel that there's so much that they could have done and should have done while the parent was still alive and they didn't do so. Sometimes see, we see in relationships, in families, where during the breakdown of the relationship, there weren't tears and the tears only come after the relationship is completely dysfunctional and uh, and it's very, very difficult to to uh, repair and to sort out the, the the damage and the destruction that has taken place. So late tears are very tragic, um, but tears at the right time are very powerful. Tears are always very powerful, but it's certainly at the right time. And that's what we learn from this incident from Leah. We learn that we're in this world. We're not here to relax. We're not here to have a good time. But we're here to do the work. And if we do the work, the work that's required of us, the work that Hashem wants us to do, so so the reward is great. The reward is eternal, and the reward is is way beyond anything we could possibly imagine. But uh, we need to learn to open up our hearts, and the gates of Shemaim open up when we cry out to Hashem, and when we look to Hashem for help, and it shifts our reality. And sometimes in life, the tears early on are a very powerful thing. And although it's a bit counterintuitive because you think, you know, that's not the case, but they have the ability to change everything for us. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Learning a very important lesson from the life of our matriarch Leah Imenu, or Leah, our, the mother of the Jewish people, and we see that things started off quite rough for Leah, and she looked like she was going to fall in the hands of Asaph, and she cried out to Hashem sincerely from the depth of her being, and things moved and things shifted, and that's how it sometimes is in life. Rachel, her sister. Um, was younger than her. She was the striking one. She was the one that Yaakov fell for early on. And, um, seemed like everything was, was in place. The stars were aligned for Rachel and not for Leah. But Rachel had a hard time. And Rachel 
couldn't conceive. And she says to, um, she says to Yaakov that if, uh, if I can't have children, so let me rather die. That's how severe her situation is. And uh, eventually she does give birth to two children, but she dies young. And Leah ends up marrying Yaakov also. And um, Leah is the mother of most of the Shvatim, or most of the tribes of children of Leah. And Leah outlives Rachel. And she, through her hardship and suffering, things turned for her um, and turn out good for her in, in her life. And so we should remember that when things are rough and tough, that sometimes there's an opportunity to bring out our greatness. We don't look for hardship. We don't look for challenges and struggles. But they certainly do find their way to us. And to think that we'll have a life without tears, we'll have a life where it's all going to be smooth sailing, is is uh, not realistic. And is that's a fantasy. That's a, you know, that maybe comes out of Hollywood, but that's not real life. And real life is filled with struggles, filled with hardships, and filled with challenges for everybody. There's nobody who's immune from that. There's nobody who's freed from that. But we learn from Leah that when we channel that pain and that hardship, and we reach out to Hashem, and we open our hearts to cry out to the creator of the universe, so that's got a tremendous power and a tremendous uh, significance that moves worlds, it shifts the reality, and it could turn things around in our favor. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.